You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. This week, I'm on vacation, so I'm digging into the archives again for you and pulling out another one of my favorite episodes of my old podcast, Comfort Food. This is episode 24, which originally aired on January 17th, 2019, just so you can put yourself in the right place and time. Our guest on this episode was Lisa Debriel, who is an incredible fat activist and clinical social worker who specializes in eating disorders and addiction. I have had so many valuable conversations with Lisa over the years, including when I interviewed her for my first book. She was one of the first people to help me start to understand why feeling, quote, addicted to food is not the same as an actual addiction the way you might see with alcohol or drugs. And she also helped me work through how feeling, quote, out of control around food is usually rooted in restriction, which can be a hard concept to wrap your brain around. This is a great conversation if you are navigating sugar anxiety as a parent or just for yourself. I think you'll find it really useful. So we'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode of the Burnt Toast podcast for you. In the meantime, I also wanted to mention that the Burnt Toast book club will be meeting via a discussion thread on my Substack on Wednesday, August 31st. The thread will go live at 12 p.m. Eastern. You can hop on anytime to join the conversation. This month, we are reading Essential Labor by the incredible Angela Garbez, who was on the podcast a few months ago. So if you love that conversation, love Angela, if you have read or even just want to read her book, I hope you will join us. It's going to be a great conversation. Okay, here's past me, past Amy, and past Lisa DeBriel with answers to all of your questions about sugar addiction. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Comfort Food. This is the podcast about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and feeding ourselves. And this week we're talking about sugar and whether we can really be addicted to it, if it makes our kids hyper, and how we can have a saner relationship with it, both in terms of sugar with ourselves and with our kids. I'm Virginia Soulsmith. I'm a writer, a contributing editor to Parents Magazine, and the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. I write about how women relate to food and our bodies in a culture that gives us so many unrealistic expectations about both of those things. And I'm Amy Palangian, a writer, recipe developer, and creator of Yummy Toddler Food and Yummy Family Food. I'm a contributor to All Recipes Magazine, and I love to help parents relax in the daily challenge of feeding their kids. So as we're recording this episode, I am just finishing out the first month of my book launch and wrapping up my book tour for The Eating Instinct. And there's been this really fascinating thing happening. You know, I've really loved all of the events. And if you guys listening, anyone's come out to the events, thank you so much. It's been a total joy to talk about the book with people. But there's one question that comes up, I think, at every single event, which has been really interesting, which is, but what about sugar? And so what I think happens is people hear me talking about, you know, the importance of trusting our bodies and listening to our hunger and fullness cues and not being afraid to take pleasure in food and how comforting eating should be at its core. And, you know, everyone's with me and everyone's nodding along and like, yes, 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 we want to do that. We want to do that. And then someone raises their hand and says, but wait, surely you don't mean sugar. <laughs> and it's so interesting that we just have right now this, this, phobia around sugar, this sort of cultural moment we're having where we classify sugar in this different category from other foods. We really have started to think of it almost like alcohol or drugs. 
Yeah. And there's, you know, in terms of kids, there's like this giant fear of juice. There's all of these fears of going to birthday parties and kids eating birthday cakes. Not the kids were going to like have these flaming meltdowns um, Mm -hmm. due to the sugar. And, you know, I think a lot of us believe these things because we hear, we just hear our friends talking about it, but we don't actually know what's true and what's not. So we wanted to sort through all of this, and we wanted to bring in a really great expert to help us. So we have Lisa Debriel with us. She is a therapist from Salem, Massachusetts, who works with clients on both eating disorders and addiction. So she's kind of the perfect person to help us sort through these different issues. So Lisa, welcome. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and your family? Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, So yes, I'm a clinical social worker, and um, I work at Mass General Hospital in Boston, um, working in um, substance use, working with people who have substance use disorders, Um, and a large number, my my particular clinical specialties um, are folks that have both eating disorders and substance use disorders, and also people that have developed different problems after um, weight loss surgeries. And then I also have a private practice in Salem where I live with my family. And um, up here I see folks, mostly um, people dealing with binge eating disorder, body distress, trying to recover from diet culture, um, things like that. I should mention Lisa is also quoted pretty extensively in chapter six of The Eating Instinct. So once you hear her and want more of her, there'll be more of her in the book. Sorry, (laughs) go ahead, Lisa. (laughs) And uh, I have a, I'm married, uh, I have a husband and a 13 year old daughter. So let's start with the big uh, question here. So is sugar addiction a real thing? In a word, no, it's not. Um, There's obviously way more detail to that. (laughs) (laughs) Bottom line, bottom line, no, it's, it's, it's not an addiction. I mean, I think that is so important and so refreshing for people to hear. I hope people are kind of breathing a sigh of relief because this really is this misconception that's out. It's, you know, it's everywhere I'm encountering it. So I I really appreciate you saying that. Let's get into that detail a little bit more. Why don't you tell us a bit about, you know, the the biology of addiction and why is sugar not classified in that same way as drugs or alcohol? Sure, sure. And and the first thing, though, I also want to, want to say is I really understand why people have this concern because we are living in a cultural time when we're being told that sugar is dangerous and and um, addictive. And so, you know, I, I want to make it really clear. I, I have total sympathy for people that are worried about this and parents that are worried about this. Um, but uh, when we look at the science, um, we're just not seeing the evidence that um, we respond to sugar the same way that we respond to what 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 are called substances of abuse. Okay, um, one of the most important things I think uh, for people to know is that our entire nervous system requires sugar; it runs on sugar. Um, that's all your brain uses for energy is carbohydrates, and all carbohydrates break down in the end to sugar. Um, and that's and and so we do have a drive for sugar because we can't survive without it. Um, but that's not the same thing as having an addiction. So that's like the first piece I think it's important for people to know. Um, so so the and then the other thing is um, the biggest piece I think that can be helpful to people is understanding the concept of habituation, which is what happens when um, a 
uh, person is exposed to something um, and because of the exposure and the access um, is able to regulate themselves around it. Um, and that's, you know, when I work with people with um, who are dealing with both a substance use disorder and um, an eating disorder, um, with the substance use disorder, we can we talk a lot about restriction and abstinence because uh, that's the best way we know right now to help people um, stabilize and live in ba- live a balanced life. Um, when we when I'm helping them with their eating disorder, we are moving away from restriction. We're moving away from abstinence because that's the best way we know how to help people. Um, feel, uh, in ba- be able to live in balance and feel like they can regulate themselves. I think a lot of what stresses, um, adults and parents out is just that it often seems like treats and sugar are just everywhere that we go. And I think that in itself can make it seem like sugar's out of control because it's all over the place, but that's like a bit, that's a very different thing than being physically addicted to it. Yes. Uh, and the piece that parents need to understand is that the more um, restrictive they are and the more they make uh, treats, however they, however they think about treats, that the more, that the more special and forbidden they make them, the more uh, a child is going to be interested in them. I mean, that's parenting 101. The minute you say right. to a child, don't touch that, you know, yeah. uh, what happens? Um, you know, that's all they want. That's all they want to touch. So it's the same thing with foods. And so it sounds like one of the key differences we all need to kind of wrap our minds around is that if you were talking about a substance that is physically addicting, it is important to avoid, you know, an alcoholic can't drink, a drug addict needs to avoid drugs. Like, Whereas in terms of managing our feelings of out of controlness or anxiety around something like sugar, we actually need to be okay having it. We need to be comfortable with the exposure. Right, right. So, so with with a substance use disorder, um, the exposure to the substance, the the overuse of the substance, heavy use of the substance, causes because of neuroplasticity, because of our ba- brain's ability to adapt and change, um, we develop tolerance. So, um, and that, you know, anyone who has struggled with substances can tell you there was a time when one or two drinks was enough and now I can't mm-hmm. seem to stop. I never can seem to stop. And that mm-hmm. has to do with physical changes that occur in the brain. Um, as, and, and obviously I also want to say that addiction is much more complicated than this. It, it also involves, um, psychosocial factors and, um, oppression and, you know, all these other cultural influences. It's not just about someone's biology, but when we are talking about the biology, you know, there's this um, tolerance that develops because the brain adapts to the heavy use. And we don't see that with foods. We don't see that with um, sugar. Uh, What we see is that through exposure and, um, and abundance that people and animals uh, actually reg- are able to regulate. It's the restriction that creates the drive, the the over over attention to um, to these foods. Is it the restriction that causes some people to then binge eat? Is that like an emotional response? That yes, yes. That and this is you know really all eating disorders involve um, restriction. 
So, um, which also we can call dieting. I mean, that's what dieting is. It's restricting mm-hmm. act, it's restricting calories or restricting certain foods. And so when that happens, you can create um, a strong drive to uh, then overeat and ignore your own hunger and fullness cues because, oh my God, now it's available and I better get it while it's still here. So when people say, oh, I can't trust myself around the Oreos, I'll eat the whole bag, that feeling of I can't stop eating the whole bag, we're kind of focusing on the wrong piece. Like it's not actually the food, it's sort of everything you did leading up to encountering the Oreo, the restriction that got you there. Exactly. And what I talk to people, how I try and break it down for people is with permission plus abundance, you can get discernment. So when you have permission, honest to God, deep in your heart permission to eat as many Oreos as you really want, and you have plenty of Oreos, you can get to a place where you can actually tell, do how, but how many do I really want? Right. Does that make sense? Yes. And also lots of times with eating disorders, including binge eating disorders, the other part of this is people also eating regularly throughout the day, eating lots of different kinds of food, making sure your nutritional needs are getting met. Because that's the other piece is that if you're under eating in other ways, you're going, you're going to make it harder for your body and brain to, um, to, to, you're going to make it harder for you to hear the signals for all the different kinds of food Mm -hmm. your body needs. But in the end, if you're undernourished at the end of the day, your brain is going to prioritize its needs. And what does it need? Carbohydrates. That's fascinating. And, and I just, the last thing I want to say about that piece is this is a feature, not a bug. Because for most of human history, the biggest threat to our existence was starvation. So we have an amazingly powerful, um, out, not in our direct control drive to keep us alive. And so trying to, push against that is like trying to train yourself to need less oxygen. Yeah. You're just never going to do it. And you're never going to do it. I think we've all met these people who give up sugar for some period of time and they say, well, as long as I don't eat it, I just don't crave it. What's going on there? I mean, well, you know, so here's the thing. Um, I'm a big believer in, uh, in believing people when they tell me about their lived experience. So someone says to me, you know, I have to tell you, I, I don't, you know, I, I cut out um, sugar, although I have to point out that no one can completely cut out sugar because it's present in <laughs> lots of different foods and we would die without it. But I know what they mean. They mean like, you know, sh- added sugar treats, etc. So if someone says to me, I've done that and I'm functioning well, I go where I want to go, I'm, I don't get preoccupied, um, I feel satisfied and life is going well. I'm going to believe them. Like it's not my job to convince people that what they're doing isn't working if what they they tell me is that it is working. But that said, lots of times in my experience, um, most folks find is that in order to um, in order to uh, maintain that kind of restriction, it requires a lot of um, other limits in their life, other, you know, places they don't go, people they don't hang out with, um, preoccupation that they have to manage. Um, th- you know, one of the ways you can think about it is if I asked you to 
um, stand up and balance a quarter on your index finger, you know, to hold your hand out and balance a quarter on your index finger, you probably wouldn't have a hard time doing that. If I asked you to do it all day long, this simple task mm-hmm. over time would start to get really difficult because you get muscle fatigue and focus fatigue, and it would it would start requiring more and more of your energy, psychological energy and physical energy to continue that that hold, right? So um, that's that can be what happens when people try and and have such a a restriction because. Um, you know, carbs are present in so many of our foods and nutritionally, you know, most human diets, I, like 50 to 60% of it is carbohydrates because our brains have such a, they need such a large amount of uh, carbs to run. So that's mo- for most people, it's, I think it's very hard to pull off over an extended period of time, but that doesn't mean there aren't some people that maybe can do that. Right, right. But that's really good to be aware of if you're thinking about something like that, like, you know, that the the odds are a little bit stacked <laughs> in terms of how your body's going to respond. Yes. And the more of a history you have of restricting and foods being forbidden, the more of an emotional pull those foods are going to have on you. So lots of mm-hmm. times the beginning of recovering with eating disorders is really sort of healing from a lot of that restriction. So in the beginning, sometimes people do over-focus on those foods because they're they're making up for all the years they weren't allowed to have them. Right, right. But then you see, as someone continues in their recovery, you see sort of a balancing yes, happen. Yes, you do. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when I work with people, we don't do it willy-nilly. You know, we very planfully think about how to help someone um, move foods from the forbidden um, column into the it's okay to eat column. And we do it in a way that feels safe and is planful um, because it can be very scary for people because they are afraid of getting completely out of control. Okay. So Lisa, you work primarily with adults struggling with food in these profound ways, but I'm curious to know if there are any particular strategies that you use with your clients, particularly when it comes to overcoming these anxieties around the so-called forbidden foods that you think are also useful for parents to incorporate and how they approach this with kids. Sure. Um, So the first thing I would recommend is to look at the resources available through the Ellen Satter Institute. And we love Ellen Satter on this podcast. And you know, when I, um, my daughter's adopted from China. And when we brought her home, even though I was in recovery from my own eating disorder, I was really worried, you know, like any parent would be that, oh, what if I pass this along to her? Um, and sure. and so uh, a friend of mine said, oh, you have to check out Ellen, Ellen Satter. And uh, so I did, and I, I discovered the division of responsibility. And that's what I used um, when um, she came home. Um, and although initially, um, you know, she, I just fed her on demand, um, even though she was 18 months old, because um, she came to me undernourished because they didn't, because the orphanage didn't have um, enough uh, resources. She was, so she was very well loved, but they, they literally didn't have enough food um, to go around sometimes. And um, so initially, you know, she, I can remember her eating um, big pats of butter 
you know, um, because she was making, again, making up for lost time and her brain was growing exponentially and she needed fat. So, but eventually as, as she was ready to do so, we moved into the division of responsibility. Um, and I found it incredibly helpful. So that's the, that's my, always my go-to resource for parents. And I just want to jump in here and say, if, um, if you guys haven't listened to it, episode 19, um, we, that's the whole episode is about the division of responsibility. So definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's even helpful for adults. You know, again, uh, lots of times with binge eating disorder, um, as well as the other eating disorders, people, um, not, don't do a great job of making sure that several times a day they have opportunities to eat and that they build predictability into their life. And so even for a quote unquote grown adult, um, that can be a really great way to think about um, feeding yourself. Um, and, um, you know, the other thing I think it's important for parents to understand is, because uh, I've seen this where, you know, people create this sort of bubble of quote unquote, safe foods at home, you know, when you've got your little one and your toddler and, and, you know, you're um, just starting grade school, but your, your baby's heading out into the big wide world where there are lots of different kinds of foods available at all sorts of different times and going into all different kinds of households. And I've heard from, um, from uh, people about, you know, uh, their, their kids' friends showing up at their house and like eating huge amounts of a snack because they don't get access to that snack at home. So you really, right. you know, we can't, we all want to, we all want to keep our children <laughs> in these, you know, safe little bubbles, but they're heading out into the world. <laughs> so you really want to think about like um, preparing your child for, for this environment. And I, I, and again, that's why I really like Ellen Satter's approach about eat, creating eating competence. So your child is really connected and, and, and their, their connection to their hunger and appetite cues have been, have been protected so that when they head out there and there are all these different um, things they can explore um, that they, can tell what they really want to eat. They can tell when they're full. Um, and, and they're not, um, because sooner or later they're going, they're going to have access to those foods, um, that you've decided are not allowed. Right. Right. And it's, yeah. How does that going to sit with them? Yeah. So interesting. Um, one strategy we use that we actually just used the other night was we had a bunch of pie left over from the holidays and I put it down on the table just as part of dinner. So we do dessert with, you know, alongside the rest of the food. Um, and it was really interesting. I mean, my five-year-old definitely ate apple pie as her primary dinner, which I thought was a very excellent choice. Um, <laughs> pie is delicious. And, you know, but she didn't, you know, she, she still was like done with the meal just as quickly as she always is. Like it wasn't, you know, oh, I'm going to really like go to town on this pie because it was just there on the table with everything else. So do you use that kind of like neutralizing treats mm -hmm. in terms of? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, my, um, and, and, and one of the, the greatest pleasures I've had um, as someone who's in eating disorder recovery has been to, to watch my daughter be able to take or leave, um, you know, treats that I would have been obsessed right. about. Um, and right, you know, it just right. feels really good to know that she's so in tuned. And I also think, you know, um, it's a very bad, you know, when, when we train children in diet culture to uh, not trust their, their bellies, you know, that's a very bad message to send. I think, especially for girls, don't trust your gut. Don't listen to your body. You know, that, that 
it moves out into other ways that they're supposed to be paying attention to what their gut tells them. And so, you know, I I think that's another important angle that people don't think about. Like we're constantly telling kids, especially little girls, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to your hunger. Don't listen Mm -hmm. to what your gut is telling you. I don't think that serves them well. Totally agree. Yeah, no, it definitely, especially, I mean, as your daughter's getting into the teenage years, I'm sure this is on your mind. I mean, there's so many choices kids have to navigate as they gain that independence that we want them really trusting themselves for. Right. Yeah. So like if a parent is feeling like there are just like treats, objectively, there are a lot of treats in in their life. Like what are ways that are not full of anxiety that we can help balance intake like you're talking about like like every time you go to the bank and there's a lollipop or there's a like the sort of yeah and like you know we just came off of the holidays and there are class parties and then parties after school and like there just is sort of there's a lot of that and I think some people without getting into wanting to restrict their children are just also wanting to make sure that their kids have an opportunity to eat other foods and be hungry for other foods Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I want to say, um, is, uh, it's normal for there to be feasts in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay if certain times of the year, there's more food available or more treats available, um, that that's not some sort of pathology that every culture on the planet has feast days. And especially I think many cultures this time of year, because it's the darkest, coldest Mm -hmm. time of year in many parts of the world, there's lots of celebrations. And so that's okay. That said, um, if you, if, if a parent was worried about this, you know, I think um, what I would recommend is, um, and what I've done with, even done with my own daughter sometimes is said, um, yep, you can grab a lollipop, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to wait and have it at snack time. And that can mm-hmm. be one of your options. And we, in my house, um, have always had a basket of treats that we've picked up hither and yon um, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> that, and that then are available to her um, for snack or dessert um, so that she, she might not be able to have something right now. Um, but she knows that it will be available to her if she decides to have it later. Um, so if you're if you're if you're worried about that kind of thing, then as long as you're making sure that there are opportunities on a daily, regular basis for your child to have access to to that, um, that you know that has worked really well. And there are also like you know if you're in church service, if you're um, you know someplace where you can't eat anyways, that there are always going to be times when right we can't stop and eat right now. Um, so, um, building in regular snacks and mealtimes are opportunities to add that treat to the options. So the American Heart Association has all these very specific recommendations for how many sugar grams we're supposed to have each day. Um, and I know that that has the tendency to freak a lot of parents out because it, it's uh, both a, like hard to actually keep track of that. I mean, nobody's like carrying a calculator around. Um, But it does set up this model where we sort of feel like we have to be monitoring and keeping track of things. And I think it's confusing to get that message from that type of a large health association. And I just wanted to get some thoughts from you on that. Sure. That's a, that's a fantastic question. So here's the thing. Anyone who's raised a child from infancy knows that 
um, they tend to go through, um, you know, they, they have like a protein day and then they'll have a carb day, you know, um, or all they want, all the, all they're willing to eat are carrots and then all they're willing to eat are, is cheese. And so I think, um, the, the idea that when left to their own devices, that humans will eat, uh, three perfectly macronutriently balanced meals every day ongoing, it, it doesn't, doesn't pan out that, um, I think that, um, what you need to think about is looking, you know, stepping back and looking at it, especially with younger children in a bigger picture. And I know that, that some re- uh, research done has shown that, um, you know, even though children overly quote unquote, overly focus on one macronutrient, um, day to day, that if you step back and look at a month's worth of eating, it's very balanced because they're listening mm-hmm. to their hunger cues. So, um, yes, there might be a day, like, again, it's the holidays and there might be a day when, oh my God, you know, we've mostly had these treats. Um, but then, um, again, assuming that you're using the, um, division of responsibility and, um, giving permit, you know, with permission and abundance, um, what you'll notice is there'll be other days when they're not that interested in those kind of foods. And I know even for myself, um, you know, I tend to, after the holidays, I tend to be looking for a lot of um, greens and soups and things like that. And I think it's a reaction to all the richer mm-hmm. foods that I've been enjoying, you know, in November and December. But it's just a sort of natural balancing, not a furious like, oh, God, I have to. Right, yeah. exactly. And it's yeah. not, yeah, it's not driven by, oh, my God, I have to make up. It's just literally like, you know, wow, I'm just not, you know, I'm kind of sick of those foods at this point. I don't want any more. Um, I'm looking for other things now. Um, and it sort of balances itself out. And, um, and, you know, and the other thing I want to, I just want to say is I, I know how, um, you know, scary it can be, um, for parents. Um, there's so much pressure on parents to do it correctly and so much fear about children's bodies and body sizes. And it can be really anxiety provoking for parents to step away from sort of the, 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 dominant culture and give this a different try. So I really do want to um, encourage people to look into Ellen Satter, to look into the resources out there um, for parents that are um, supporting children's natural hunger and satiety cues. There are resources, there are other folks out there that are doing it this way. And oh my God, it makes mealtimes so much easier when you're not, you know, attempting to negotiate um, you know, exactly what they're putting in their mouths. You know, there's, there, there are other things we do need to be very controlling about what goes into our children's mouths. You know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to encourage kids that they can trust themselves around that. Yeah. I just want to say that like, that is one of my big goals with um, my website. Cause I just, it's so much, it's just, meals are happier, they're less stressful, and you can just like take this huge burden off yourself if you're not counting bites of broccoli or worried that your child is getting enough and that if you just can get to a place of trusting them. But it, of course, does take a lot of work and it's not something that, you know, will just automatically click into place. It often takes some work and then takes some more work. And it's like a perspective that you need to keep reminding yourself that mm-hmm. it's probably better, mm-hmm. better. 
And it wouldn't it be nice if big groups like the American Heart Association could get on board? Because I do think, like Amy said, people get really freaked out about these like serious recommendations. And it's hard to recognize like, oh, that's another metric, just like all the diet culture metrics mm-hmm. that we don't need. Just because it's coming from a bunch of cardiologists doesn't mean it's actually good for your child's mental health. Right. And again, you know, um, you can always uh, ask about and get curious about, well, where's that data coming from? And, um, and who mm-hmm. told them that? And who's influencing, who's influencing these campaigns? Because sometimes what you find out is they're coming from um, pharmaceutical corporations or diet corporations um, that don't necessarily mm-hmm. have our best interests uh, at heart. That is such a great point. Yes, absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an enlightening conversation. And I think there's just, I mean, we could talk about this stuff all day long. So (laughs) thank you for making the time. Um, Will you tell our listeners where they can find more of you and where you are on social media and all that? Um, Sure. So my website, uh, which is constantly in development, uh, is uh, Lisa, (laughs) lisadubriel.com. And I'm on Twitter. Um, at Lisa J. Dubriel. And I think that's my Instagram handle as well. I follow Lisa on Twitter and she tweets tons of great stuff. So I definitely recommend following oh, her. Oh, thank you. There's lots of good stuff out there. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. This was awesome. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. And I'm really glad that you are out here doing this work. It's really important. Okay. So Virginia, you have had a busy few weeks and you're trying out a new approach to some dinners. So can you tell us what, what happened? So as everyone who listens to the podcast knows, I hate meal planning. Um, (laughs) See our episode with KJ Delantonia for the full scoop on that. We'll link in the show notes. Um, But yeah, so we've had a couple of weeks where I have been on the road for the book nonstop plus holidays. And so there's been Many weeks where what I typically do is grocery shop on Fridays or Saturdays for the whole week. And then, of course, just like make up dinner on the fly, the rest, (laughs) you know, from whatever I've bought. But there's been a lot of weekends where I've been away for book stuff. So I haven't been able to get to the grocery store. And Dan's been doing the Walmart run to cover our usual staples. But like, it just seemed like we needed an easier plan for me to like, oh, often I was like coming back from a trip just in time to make dinner, but not oh. in time to do anything in advance of making dinner. That's the worst. So yeah, it is like kind of a, yeah, mind bending. And so, you know, I didn't want to just totally go over to takeout mostly because we eat takeout so much. I've gotten a little sick of our local takeout options. Um, (laughs) I knew we needed to cook. Fancy problem. I know. Um, (laughs) but uh, So I decided I got a coupon in the mail for HelloFresh, which is one of those, like they send you the meal kit types of services like Blue Apron or Sun Valley or all those different companies. And so let me say right up front, I paid for this myself. I mean, I did use the coupon they sent me, but I didn't get it because we're podcasters. I'm sure everyone has gotten these coupons in their mailbox. (laughs) Um, They don't know who we are. Um, So it's not a sponsoring or endorsement kind of thing. Um, But I was like, well, let me give this a try because the whole concept, right, is that you hop on the website, pick out a few recipes you want to make for the week, and then a box of groceries shows up on your doorstep with all the instructions and everything. Um, And 
it definitely solved that issue of I can't go to the grocery store or really think about dinner until I need to be cooking dinner because, you know, I did like spend five minutes on the website randomly picking a few things to try. But then, yeah, the box arrived like one day, I like got there right as I was getting home. And so I was able to unpack the groceries and it's nice. Like they send you stuff to make three meals and everything's like in its own little bag. Um, so you just like take out your bag and then unpack and it's got all the vegetables and everything you need. I think you have to provide like olive oil and salt, but that's about it. Um, Does it come like in a cooler? It's like a box that's lined with like cooler type material and there's okay. like a big ice pack on the bottom. Yeah. So everything was fresh. Like the ingredients all looked pretty good. Um, the tomato was a little anemic looking. I think sending a tomato in a cooler box is a dicey proposition <laughs> for it to not get kind of blanched out. Um, but everything else was pretty fresh. I mean, also it's like a tomato in November and the Northeast yeah. can be a tough sell. Um, but everything was pretty good. So I really liked it for that ease of convenience of like, you know, for non-meal planners, I think it's a great option because it like totally takes away that 5 p.m. panic. The downsides, I would say, are the meals are not very make-ahead friendly. So often when I'm not traveling, you know, I want to get dinner figured out in the morning or on my lunch break. And, you know, we're busy doing something with the kids in the like hour before dinner happens, like we're at swim lesson or whatever. So all of these meals do require you to be able to be at the stove for like 30 minutes or so before you want to eat, which is I think a challenge for a lot of people juggling kid and work schedules. Um, so that I think is a is a drawback to them. I would love to see them do more like here's a slow cooker recipe or, you know, make ahead type of thing. Um, and it was they aren't. It's, it surprised me. I didn't feel like they were marketing to families as much as I expected because you have to choose between a two person portion or a four person portion. But in my house you know, we are four people, but two of them are Are small people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I wasn't going to get the four person portion because that seemed like it would be, that would have been way too much food. But there were nights where the two person portion like wasn't quite enough. Like there was one recipe that was like this taco flatbread thing. And like Dan and I were both like, yeah, we want to eat this whole thing. (laughs) Well, now what are we feeding the kids? And so I still had to figure out, um, you know, rounding it out with a few things to give the girls. So that was, um, that was, I, I, I would love to see them do like a, we expect that this is parents eating with small children. I mean, I would feel like there's a lot of us. Yeah, there is. Um, there's another company called One Potato Box, but they're not available everywhere because I have checked. So it's oh. like the Wheelish's founder. And then um, the woman who runs Shutterbean, the website does the photos. And so I can't tell if I just want them because their photos look so, so good. So pretty, yeah. Um, or like whether it would really taste like that in my house, but I right. can't get it in Iowa anyway. So it's not something that's well, really... Well, I'm going to check into that because that's, yeah, I, I felt like they could be doing a better job. Like, I feel like, well, this is a great option if you're childless and just cooking for two people or if you have older kids and like the four-person portions would make more sense for you. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it was a little tricky because some of the recipes, like I will say the recipes were super straightforward. The time estimates were correct, which I appreciated. It wasn't one of those, like, it's a 20-minute recipe, but really 40 minutes. Like, <laughs> no, it was like a 20 to 35, you know, I was like churning out dinner super fast that week. And I did like, like on the one hand, it feels wasteful because like all the food comes in this big box and there's extra packaging. But I like, we didn't waste food that week because... I only bought the ingredients that I needed, you know, like I only had the ingredients to make these exact things, which if you don't meal plan is you often don't have that. Right, <laughs> um, right. I'm not saying there's not an easier hack to that, but I'm saying I don't do it. Um, so yeah, that was like, I did like that there was no food waste, but I, 
I just felt like I often ended up having to like add on a little bit to the meals or improvise a bit to make it work for my family. Um, and Dan did say he likes my cooking better overall, which I thought was sweet of him to say. Um, yeah, that is nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I was like playing around, you know, I mean, as I've discussed, I'm a kind of improvisational cook. Um, and so I did definitely play with the seasonings a bit and, you know, like try to tailor things a little bit more to us. But it was great to have that starting point. So long story short, I definitely get why there's a lot of pushback. I've always been really skeptical about this concept. I don't know why. I think I was just sort of being a snob about it. Yeah, I am too. I mean, yeah, I admit it, it just feels like somehow like, what? You can't just like cook on your own. You need someone to like send you a box. And then I was like, screw it. Yeah, I do. Like no shame in that game. (laughs) Send me a box of food so I don't have to think about dinner. Um, That part was pretty great. So I think if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of time to fit grocery shopping in, because that can be such a time suck on the weekend. It's much easier to just go and look at their options to pick what you want to cook than like have to like deal with the entirety of the internet and find a recipe. Right. Like it was really nice having all the noise cut out. That is totally true because they changed the menus week to week. But it was like, okay, here are these few choices, you know, that we are offering this week, which on the one hand, like I was like, mm, I'm really just picking three things with meatballs because I don't think my kids will eat the other things. <laughs> but on the other hand, I was like, I like that this is like taken out decision fatigue for me. So yeah, I think I might try some other ones. On a sort of related note, um, just a quick mention of this. So I'm not like a freezer. I mean, I talked about like prepping for when baby comes a little bit, but I'm not like a freezer meals person. But um, Pinch of Yum recently did like this massive 12 recipe freezer meals post that um, both made me in awe of their blogging savvy again. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I was looking at the recipes and it, it was not what I expected because you don't actually. So a lot of freezer meals you cook ahead of time and then put in the freezer, at least I thought. Um, clearly, I don't do this very often. But mm-hmm. this is just like you chop a bunch of things, put it in a bag, and then it has directions for what to do and like what to add after. And I was like, that's so much easier. Oh, that's very similar to what this says, except it's not frozen. Yeah, because then yeah. It, like you have all of your stuff and then you put it in the slow cooker and you like add three ingredients that are from the pantry and then you have dinner. It's like, I'm totally going to do that. so we'll put a link to that because and also the recipes are like things that I would actually want to eat um like there's a chicken meatballs recipe there's tandoori chicken Korean barbecue beef like it's and like chicken tinga like it's stuff with lots of flavor I don't know if my kids will like it but I'm like I want to eat this you'll like it that's what matters most exactly I guess my question is when are you going to do all the food prep yeah see I don't know (laughs) like in theory I'm like this is a great idea um, For that wh- random free Saturday where my children or, are. <laughs> or maybe this is like one of the things that I have my mom or the mother-in-laws do when they come, uh, when they come to help with the baby. baby. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. That's- I hand them like four recipes and then they prep them. And then all I have to do is like add the, like, yep. I'm just looking at like what I would need to add for one of these. Like I need to get some tortillas done. Right. So oh, that's very smart. That sounds like a great strategy for that particular yeah. period of your life. Maybe I can just recruit general neighborhood volunteers who want to do it for me, <laughs> just to be nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why not? Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I'm not having another baby to get it. So <laughs> uh, that's cool. Yeah. So anyway, I think my big takeaway was just, you know, like, no, I don't know why I was being sort of snobby about these things. Like, I think it's good if you're feeling panicked about dinner, as we all so often are, to like try something new and see whether it's a good fit for you. And if I do try other meal prep 
kits like this, I will certainly report back if I find one that feels better for those of us in the like small appetite children phase. Yeah. And if anyone has tried one potato box, I would love to hear what you think. Yeah. Or any others that you think are really good that we should be doing. Thanks so much for listening to Brick Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the newsletter. Just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get lots of great perks. You keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.